Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Pentagon watchers got a surprise late last month when the Air Force revealed it had designed and built a prototype of its next fighter plane. Remarkably, the entire development process, likely coordinated with multiple defense contractors over the course of many months, was completed without any rumors leaking about the program. This aircraft is just the latest example of how little we know about the cutting edge of military defense and how much investors are kept in the dark about where the Pentagon spends its money. On this week's episode, Molly Fool contributor Lou Whiteman joins the show to take a look at classified defense spending and what it means for defense investors. Lou, welcome back on the podcast. Happy to be here. Great to have you on as well. Always, we've got a fun topic this week talking about classified projects in the defense industry. Before we dive into some of these projects and maybe how you should think about them as an investor, just high level, maybe this is an obvious question, but why are there so many classified projects uh, with the U.S. military and with militaries uh, in general? Yeah, you know, I mean, d- d- dissertations have been written on this, so we won't go in too deep. But uh, in a very simple level, the Pentagon will argue that secrecy is the key to military superiority. We can't let our rivals, our enemies know what we are working on. No different than a football coach hiding the playbook. But uh, in fairness, it, the critics will say, and they're right, it, it's there's a lot of secrecy that leads to limits on oversight that can hide waste. Uh, there's a lot that can go wrong with it. And it's, it's, it's a constant moving target as far as what's too much and what's being done. So when we talk about classified defense work, how big is that market relative to the overall uh, defense budget? So classified is more than 10% of the total Pentagon budget, which was $721 billion in fiscal 2020. Now, remember, that also includes a lot of payroll and a lot of non-contractor stuff. It's probably well north of 25% of total procurement spending for contractors. And it's, it's rising. We saw it go down after the Cold War, but in recent years, classified growth is outpacing total Pentagon budget growth and uh, by a decent margin. Which makes sense. Obviously, new technologies, typically classified projects are going to be on the cutting edge. Uh, The the secret special sauce you don't want your opponents uh, to know about. Obviously, there's not a lot of disclosure when when it comes to these projects. But from an investor's point of view, what disclosure do we get on classified projects that companies may be participating in? So we get very high altitude generalized guidance. Most defense contractors will break out their classified bookings or classified revenue. Uh, They won't tell us specific programs. Uh, They will hint at it on calls and you can get an idea of what's going on kind of just based on the company. Uh, These companies do different things. Lockheed Martin is getting a lot of classified work that is presumably hypersonic missiles, for example. Uh, Northrop Grumman is a lot of space. Uh, They Also, they have the B-21 bomber that is still largely under wraps. Uh, The point being, though, and the real interesting thing in here is that whatever disclosure we get, it created a hole big enough to hide a new jet fighter in, which is which I think speaks volumes to how little we know about what's going on. Right. And I want to bring up that that jet fighter that we talked about off the top of the show. What do we know about that so far? Like, Like you said, we don't know who's developing it. 
No, we don't. Well, we know the, the Air Force is taking the lead on this, and which is interesting, and we can talk about that in a second. But it was developed in just over a year, which is a crazy short time span for one of these projects. Uh, it is, in theory, a replacement for the F-22, a Lockheed Martin plane that has largely been a dud. It's never going to be what they thought it was, in part not its own fault. The F-22 was developed in the end of the analog age. Uh, it has been hard for this plane to keep up with the digital transformation, the fly-by-wire and the radar, the sensors, the the working together, the electronics that we have come to uh, come to use since. This is the replacement, and it speaks to I think where the Air Force wants to go, which is really where this is interesting. The, just the fact that they did this alone, but uh, but this is a different way to build an airplane. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that speed of time to market, uh, really significant. How do you think that this airplane will be different from the F-22? You mentioned that that more digital native uh, technology. What, what should we be paying attention to there? I think they've borrowed heavily from the F-35 and probably learned a lot from the F-35. The F-35, with for all of its problems, is a much better airplane. Uh, it likely had, with the pure fighter, the F-22 had to be a lot faster. So it's not going to be a replica of the F-35, which was designed to take on a lot of roles. But I think you are going to, it, it's most likely a, a next gen and highly, highly upgradable version of an F-22 with the speed and stealth characteristics, but uh, a, a lot more, uh, probably miles and miles more of wiring than you had on the F-22. Absolutely. So the big question everybody has right now is who is the company behind uh, uh, this this new aircraft? You look at some comments from, from Will Roper, who is who's the head of, of acquisitions for the Air Force, and he suggests that it might not be some of these these names that, that come to mind, that, that there could be some companies that aren't traditional defense contractors that are playing in this space. Do you have any thoughts on on who the potential names might be out there? Yeah, well, I mean, so yeah, Roper's quote, and I'll read it to you because it really is interesting because I mean, it, he's, it's not very subtle. He said, I, I have to imagine there will be a lot of engineers, maybe famous ones that have well-known household names and billions of dollars to invest that would be curious about this. I mean, he's just screaming out for Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos there, right, and some of their activities. Uh, for this, I would be really surprised if it's one of them. It's probably one of three suspects. It's either Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, or Boeing. If I had to guess, I would guess Lockheed, but it would be maybe the odds, maybe 20%. It's not. Uh, the real, real interesting thing here, though, for investors to take away is, is it might not matter. In the past, these planes have been franchises, multi-decade just powerhouses. The F-35 is going to bring in $1 trillion for Lockheed and its subcontractors. The Air Force would like to shift to almost more, it's a weird analogy, but almost an automobile model where you have a number of companies putting out platforms that they update every few years. And it's a constant state where the Air Force is buying smaller lots for a couple of years and then recompeting with the idea being that some of this digital transformation that allowed them to design a plane in a year, as this improves, it'll bring down the total R&D costs. And it can be, say, you have three or four contractors who are constantly, even if they're not in production, are constantly designing planes. And instead of having just a... A, a, a flag post, this is our program for the next 10 years, that you're going to buy 
for two years from Lockheed and then Northrop can get back into it. That opens up a lot of opportunities. It ends the winner take all mentality. Over time, it could really work out well for these companies because other than Lockheed Martin, Northrop and Boeing, they have been shut out since the 80s on new planes. Right. So getting rid of some of that lumpiness, maybe there can be more new entrants into the market. And I I imagine that the Air Force would appreciate having a more diverse uh, subset of potential people, uh, potential suppliers. Yeah. Yeah. And constantly upgrading their product. It it, it could be a win-win, but uh, it's crazy to think of versus how it's been done before. Right. So so when we talk about these projects like the aircraft, where there's a physical thing out in the world that people can see, that's one category of classified technology, classified secret. However, there's a whole nother genre of classified programs where we're talking about spies, counterespionage work, the type of thing where there's not a physical good out in the world that you can see that's classified. It's information uh, that's classified. What types of public companies do work in those types of fields of classified defense work? So these are the companies, the so-called Beltway Bandits that you see if you ever have the pleasure of driving from uh, Washington, D.C. out to Dulles Airport. Uh, Mantech, Booz Allen Hamilton, SAIC, Khaki, Lighthouse Holdings, uh, General Dynamics. Some of the big guys have really big uh, portfolios here, too. But yeah, these are the government services companies, and they do a ton of work. It's not all classified. A lot of it is they run the uh, email systems for health and human services. Uh, this is there's a gradual outsourcing of the federal government's IT. And these government service companies do a lot of that work, but they also, a, a large and growing business of the part of their business is classified, is intelligence, is uh, spy, spy agencies, not just the Pentagon. Right. And when you compare these types of programs relative to you know the, the aircraft that we talked about earlier, is there a different margin profile? Is this type of work a, a bigger subset of the defense budget relative to uh, these real projects? Or Any thoughts there on, on color there? Comparing it to hardware is a little weird because uh, the margins, it varies, varies by product. Uh, in general, some of the services can be commoditized, so you see low margins on, say, what did I say, running the email servers for the for health and human services. Classified can stand out. Uh, those biz- that business tends to be stickier, and it tends to be higher margin in part because it's harder to commoditize. You have specialized skills, specialized training. You can't just flip it every two years to a new contractor. Uh, you know, it's interesting. It's also led to a lot of the M and A in the sector. Uh, it it can take years to get workers clearances. And a lot of the lack of growth in years past for these companies have been, we just can't get enough classified employees on to bid for this work. Uh, The easy way around that is to buy a whole bunch of cleared employees uh, through an acquisition of a smaller company. So it really does fuel a Washington, D.C. kind of a food chain from the bigger swallowing up to smaller, almost to get the assets, the people more than it is the business. Right, it's that aquahire mentality. You see that you see that playing out somewhat in uh, autonomous drive is another area where where lots of companies there's only so many folks who who have the expertise in, in the, the underlying technologies you need to to grow in that industry, and so you see lots of aquahiring going on to to try to gobble up that talent. When we talk about these companies that are engaged in this espionage, counterterrorism type work, that the company that's a lot of that at that is at the top of a lot of investors' minds right now is Palantir. It's a company backed by Peter Thiel. They played a role in the hunt for Osama bin Laden a number of years ago, and has and the company has gone public in recent weeks. When you look at Palantir, what are your thoughts on that company today? 
It's interesting. I mean, what are they? Because I, I know what I think they are, but I get a lot of pushback on Twitter when I say what I think they are. I mean, this is a company that is born in Silicon Valley and it's born of that mindset. Notably, they've moved out of Silicon Valley in part because they're very, very angry about stuff, they, stuff very relevant, what's going on with Twitter right now. So they have a different, I guess, ethos. They have more of a government ethos, but more than half of their revenue comes from the government. Uh, most of their, it seems lucrative work, although it's hard to, um, it's, it's hard to really get at that. But uh, there's a real simple reason why they don't necessarily want to look like one of these government services contractors. Uh, Booz Allen Hamilton is about the best run government services firm you can get. It trades about one and a half times sales. Uh, private companies like Splunk, I think that's trading at 13 times sales. Salesforce paid 10 times sales for Tableau. Uh, Palantir right now is hoping to get to $1 billion in revenue this year. Their market cap is $20 billion. That's a 20 times sales forward multiple. It's really easy to see why you don't want to be lumped in with a group of companies that are trading at one or two times sales. But to me, what they are doing is they are doing this same work. And uh, I think that's what most of the business is. So that's kind of how I view them right now. Right. And so, so you think the, the way the market is viewing it is more of a technology company. When you drive down into what the company actually does and their margin profile and that sort of thing, it looks much more similar to these other, uh, these other uh, defense uh, contractor firms. Right, right. And I think there's real risk here, too, because I think there is this perception in one in one sense that they are a, a private commercial company. But uh, as you say, they, they are notably they were involved in the hunt for Osama bin Laden. Their technology right now is being used to target a lot of drone strikes. And that is controversial. They also their software is used by Homeland Security's Immigration and Customs Enforcement Division. Uh, that all everything you've seen at the border. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to have the debate right or wrong, whether they should do it. I mean, they had some really, really pointed statements in their S1 about, look, if our government's doing this, they deserve the best technology and we're doing it. And that's that's one argument. But I'll tell you, that has made them a target of a lot of groups. I think investors need to decide for themselves, but be warned that this collection of contracts, which is the the heart and soul of their business. It's a lightning rod. It's hard to imagine over time that it doesn't have some limit to the attractiveness of the shares for some investors, and it could weigh on the shares over time. It's uh, right or wrong. It's just something to consider when you look at this company. Yeah, I think it's a fair point to bring up. You know, on, It can put a bad taste in, in some investors' mouth, uh, just to some of the uh activities that they participate in. However, you know, if you want to take the other side of that coin, there aren't a lot of people rushing to provide services to this industry, and Palantir could have a limited number of competitors for that reason. Before we move on from Palantir, just a kind of a high-level question, how big do you think the market is for this company? You see this development of data analytics work and its role in you know, spy, spying and that sort of thing. Do you think that's, that's something where the market for defense spending is growing as a result of the services that Palantir uh, is offering? Or is it something where the nature of defense is changing and it, Palantir is just growing up? It's just grabbing a piece of, of the same pie that was already there. I think it's it's grabbing a piece of a growing pie. It's really hard to put a number on it. Government services revenue is probably somewhere in the ballpark of 30 to 40 billion annually. But there's a lot included in there. Uh, this 
dark stuff, the the spy stuff is a much smaller portion of that, but it is a growing part of it. And the government is becoming more and more reliant on these contractors to provide it. I will say this for Palantir. I guarantee you every other one of these Beltway bandits would love to have their technology. And, uh, you know, it's, and so they are going to be taking business, but it is a growing pie that they are eating out of. So I don't think it necessarily dooms anyone else. Sure. Before we move on from, from classified investing and talk a little bit about the budget um, and some of those topics, any just kind of final thoughts on investing in, in these classified companies? You look at a company like Palantir, you're not going to get a, a, a great look at the nature of the work that they're doing and, and that sort of thing. How do you think about investing in these types of companies? Oh, yeah. And it's a lot of them, too. I mean, Mantech, I was just looking at, I believe 45% of their bookings last quarter were just classified. So who knows what it was? The one thing I'd say is that uh, with that, the payer here, the customer is the U.S. government. Uh, in terms of just buying blindly, knowing that the U.S. government is on the other side of the transaction, knowing their ability to pay the bills and knowing how hard it is to just announce a, a, a made-up contract. I, I, I think it's not as blind investing as you might think. And it really doesn't matter if the contract is with the NSA or the spying agency. So I don't sweat the details on this. You got to accept some uncertainty, but it's not like it's um, you know a, a, a prince via email promising you this contract. It is the US government providing the, providing the cash at the end of the day. So that, that, that allows me to sleep at night anyway. Yeah, I think I think one one last thing that I, I'd remember as well is right. You've got a customer that you know they're not going to go anyway anytime soon, and then two, I think they're like you said earlier, they're they're significant barriers to entry uh, to providing some of these services just because of how hard it is to get your necessary clearances and all that sort of thing. So, so you're in an industry where it's unlikely you're going to see lots of new entrants uh, to compete uh, with these folks that are already in the market. And so while there is concern, some concern about transparency, uh, there is somewhat lesser concern about new entrants. And so you know, it, there's a give and take there. Uh, before we go away, Lou, I, I'd be remiss if we didn't at least spend some time talking about the budget. The presidential election is less than three weeks away. And the defense industry, as you mentioned, their primary customer is the U.S. federal government defense stocks, in particular those that are government services companies we mentioned earlier, have unperformed the market this year on fears of a declining Pentagon budget. Are these concerns justified in your opinion? How are you thinking about the new budget with the election coming up? So it's not unusual for these stocks to be under pressure in an election year. And I, it is it has played out this year, as you've said. Uh, you know, the Pentagon planners, they were preparing for flat budgets these next few years, uh, regardless of who wins this election. Uh, we've had a couple of really good years of growth. Even two years ago, they were signaling this is going to have to end. Uh, COVID-related spending, a lot of government borrowings, there's a lot of more new pressures that we couldn't anticipate a couple of years ago, but we were headed for a flatline budget and nothing has changed that. Uh, that said, we are in a period of modernization. We, we, we spent a long time after the Cold War either cutting back on government spending or Pentagon spending or funding Middle East campaigns instead of really modernizing or looking to the future. The Pentagon is in the middle of a modernization effort. Uh, that means big spending on equipment, big spending for contractors and R&D. Uh, the White House is committed to this. Uh, the Biden campaign is committed to this. 
I don't think that's going to disappear and I don't think it's going to dry up. And meanwhile, thanks to this last few years and some of these contracts given up, most of the majors have tens and tens of billions in their backlog that looks pretty safe. So they can actually grow the business even in a flat budget the next few years. We can't have this indefinitely, but uh, I'm not worried about it right now. So this is a question we didn't have in the notes, Lou, but I, I just thought about it and it, it's maybe a fun question. Do you have any concerns about the Space Force if there's a change in the administration? No, because a lot of that, without being political, a lot of that was happening anyway, and it's just putting a new fence around it. And this is an important part of the modernization effort. And even if Space Force was to be backtracked and just put back into mostly the Air Force, I can't imagine a lot of the pro, those priorities. If anything, if, if they were to decide to, to, to put Space Force kind of back inside the Air Force, there'd be personnel adjustments, there'd be spending adjustments on that side. But the big programs, the big priorities, those, those are years before Space Force and they're not going anywhere. Okay. So, so when it comes to the budget, you know, keep calm and carry on when it comes to investing in these uh, defense companies. Last thing before we go away, Lou, always like to ask, what's a defense stock that's on your radar that you think uh, listeners should be paying attention to right now? Well, when you talk about the budget, you mentioned correctly that the government services companies have been particularly hard hit. And that's because the last time we had a flat to shrinking budget, the sequestration in the later end of the Obama years, government services is where most of the cost cuts were found. That didn't work out too well. Uh, it, Edwin Snowden came, Edward Snowden came in that time. We had a lot of other IT issues. Uh, we also were fighting a lot of wars in the Middle East that drained a lot of the budget. I don't think the Pentagon is going to make the same mistake twice. If anything, I think they are going to overcorrect and make sure government services, IT modernization is not where the budget cuts happen this time. I think the government services firms are being overly punished by a worried market. I like a lot of them. I think Lido's SAIC, uh, Boy, Booz Allen. I, the one I really like is Mantech right now, and I uh, can put a link to that. Mantech is a smaller company. It's a lot of these classified areas that should be sticky. And it's also small enough that it could either be a buyer or a seller in a consolidating market. So you have a lot of ways to win. Uh, that's Mantech is the one I'm really curious to watch in the next six months, uh, what happens. Yeah. For our listeners who aren't familiar with that company, what's your elevator pitch? Obviously, they're in this government services sector. What stands out for them relative to these other companies? So they are a, they are a 50-year-old company, but they are a turnaround story in a way because they were doing a lot of the grunt work services. They were, they were running the canteens in uh, Afghanistan 10 years ago. And as that as that business dried up, uh, they got heavily into IT and used mergers and acquisitions to do it. They are a huge part of the of, of the top secret of the classified arena now in terms of a lot of their specialized uh analytics. And uh, they seem to be pretty good at it. They are taking share. They also have a founder and chairman who stepped back from CEO a few years ago and just now has stepped back from being the executive chairman. They were never going to sell under him. As he steps into the background, I think a lot of things could open up either as far as getting aggressive, doing a merger of equals, doing bigger deals or finding a buyer. It's just there's a lot of ways to win on this company in, in the space. And it's it's very interesting right now. All right. So the ticker on Mantech is M-A-N-T. If you want to add that to your watch list, we'll be uh, paying attention to 
all these defense topics as, as they come down the line. And Lou will be looking forward to having you on the podcast once again to break it all down. Always a pleasure. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Lou Whiteman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool On.